So let's pray. Father, we thank you that you give us these words because this is a means by which you reveal yourself to us. Father, in a passage like this, which describes something quite unfamiliar to us, that actually is full of lots of details, it could be really hard to see uh, why we need these words, what you're wanting to show and impress upon our hearts. Father, I pray that by your spirit, you would open our eyes to see how these details matter to you. How these garments that you give your priests, who are those mini pictures and pointers forward to Jesus, how that tells us things that are so true and so needed that we need to stake our life on them. Father, we pray that you do this work through your word this morning. Amen. Well, I remember a while ago going to a a debate, and I I can't for the life of me remember whether this was the title of the debate or if this was just a point that was being made in this debate, but there there was a guy I remember who uh, was a pretty memorable guy, Scottish kind of security researcher, uh, very passionate, and he was arguing very strongly that our, our justice system should take very seriously people who are imposters, who take on the uniform that doesn't belong to them. So their point is, even if people are having a laugh, if you dress up as a police officer, there should be an extreme penalty. So bad that you really take it seriously. You don't want to mess around for a laugh. And his point was that uniform is immensely powerful. Uh, When someone puts on a uniform, uh, dressing themselves like a policeman, it changes the way that we look at them, the way that we think of them. It, It changes the amount of authority that we give to them. I think we'd kind of resonate with this even just by looking at someone with a, a fluorescent jacket on. Have you ever had that experience where you've kind of looked around and you're like, is that person supposed to be there? You're like, well, they've got a fluorescent jacket on. You know, they must be legit. Uh, they might not be. But the uniform, it, it gives you confidence. Uh, it changes the way you think of a person. But a uniform also tells you something about what someone needs to do. Think of that policeman again. Uh, they have things, they're wearing parts of their uniform that, that help do their job. They're, they're going to have a, a vest that is hopefully going to keep them safe if they were attacked. They've got a belt around their waist and maybe they've got some handcuffs. A very different thing to wear than, say, the sports person who's wearing skin-tight lycra. There, the, the speed and low friction is what their uniform optimises. There's something in a uniform that tells us about what someone is doing. Well, in chapter 28 here this morning, God gives his people a uniform. Uh, The uniform that is given to not a king. There's no kings in God's people at this time. This uniform is not given to a police force. This uniform is given to the priesthood, to the priests that God's people are going to need. And there's something in this uniform that is to underline the specialness and the importance of this task that God has given them to do. Uh, As we'll see in a moment, there's an aesthetic beauty to what this priest is to wear. They were to dazzle. People's eyes are to be drawn to them. They are those who have been called to be holy and serve in a special way for God's people. But the uniform also tells us something of the function of the priesthood's. Uh, You see, the priesthood's uniform isn't a a practical thing. The 
there are some very practical details, and I wonder those of us who, who like maybe making clothes, you would have noticed the you know, strengthening the collar around uh, the rope so it doesn't rip. You, know, you have to care about those things. And yet there are parts of this uniform that are, are trying to point us to the spiritual significance of what this priest was to do for God's people. Uh, and all of this then leads to chapter nine, 29, where the priests in their uniform are consecrated they are made ready to do this job of serving God. Uh, and the end of chapter 29, we get that kind of repeated refrain that we saw last week. This is so that I, the Lord, will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. They will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. Uh, this is all an essential part of God making his home to his people now, we've started to think about this already in our service, but it's important that we orientate ourselves as Christians reading this passage to what we're going to see here. Uh, we don't have priests in this way. Uh, there is a sense in which we are all priests in Christ, but there's something particular about the role that these priests are going to be given that is fulfilled in Jesus and who he is. They are pointing forward to him. And so as we read these details and we think about this uniform, it's, it's giving us an angle, an insight into the sort of person that Jesus is, the sort of priestly work that he does for us. Uh, that's where we're going. So uh, three things for us to see about a priest and how that then helps us think about Jesus. And the first is this, a priest has access to God. Uh, if you look at verse one in chapter 28, this is the first point in uh, the kind of history of God's people that the priesthood is sort of given over to a group of people verse one let Aaron your brother be brought to you from among the Israelites with his sons Nadab and Abihu Eleazar and Ithamar so that they may serve me as priests uh, they are to be the ones given this special responsibility and uh, they need to be given this uniform, these clothes, look at verse 2, make sacred garments for your brother. That word sacred is a word we keep on seeing in Exodus. It's a word used for holy. These are special holy garments. And there are a number of components. Look at verse 4. There's going to be a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a woven tunic, a turban, and a sash. They're all together to form this uniform and notice, verse 5, what they're made of. Make them use gold and blue, purple and scarlet yarn and fine linen. Now, I confess, this is the sort of detail that I just blank out in my mind. It's probably an insight into my character as to how aesthetically wide I am. I thought it was very interesting reading this passage uh, as a family. Uh, Ruth, our middle child, who is much more aesthetically tuned, noticed these colours and said, Aha, we've seen that before. Do you know where we've seen that before? We've seen it in the tabernacle. This is the colour scheme of the tabernacle. Uh, you see, there is supposed to be this wonderful matching between what the high priest is to wear and the, the colour scheme that is going on in the tabernacle. If you like, this is the, the branding of holiness. They are to be holy like the tabernacle. And where does the priest belong? They belong in God's home. There's to be this kind of visual symbol making that point, underlining it. But notice too what uh, God says in verse 2. These garments are to be made for Aaron. Why? To give him dignity and honour. Uh, literally glory 
and splendor. At glory and splendor, these are words that are used of God. God is glorious. God is full of splendor. But if you like, these clothes are to sort of kind of radiate a godlikeness in this work of the priests. Now that's going to be reflected in how people treat them, what they see of them. Now, I think it's helpful to see a picture, and wonderfully this week, uh, we have a picture. Oh, lights, I don't know. Can you just about see that? That's easier than me turning the lights off. Uh, this is made by our own Grace Kids team. This uh, high priestly uniform is being looked at upstairs. Um, do you notice the, those colour schemes that are matching? Uh, you're going to see there are things on the shoulders, on the breast piece, and on the forehead. And those are things that we are going to look at in particular. Now, we are being given here this powerful visual association, I think. Um, bear in mind, at this point in history, you don't have sewing machines. And I, I don't know what the, the general aesthetic looked like of clothes, but this is stunningly radiating and beautiful. It is made of expensive stuff. I don't know how you would weave gold thread when you don't have the materials, the, the machines that we have now. But why would God go to such effort in making something so expensive and so aesthetically made? It's because he's trying to impress upon us something about the holiness, his holiness, that is needed to enter his presence. And we, we thought about this a bit last week, didn't we? Only holy people can enter into God's presence. And these holy garments were to declare these priests as being those who were holy those who could enter and serve in God's presence. And yet that holiness is not a dull holiness. It's a beautiful, radiant, glorious and splendid thing to behold. Uh, we've already noticed, haven't we, that there are connections here in our passages uh, in the tabernacle and now this role of priest with the beginning chapters of the Bible and in fact the end chapters of the Bible. Uh, there are pomegranates, sewn on the bottom of the robe. There are those jewels on the breastplate. In fact, the uh, sign on the turban, it might well uh, be a sort of a flower-shaped medallion, some people think. There are lots of pointers back to the garden because what is being presented to God's people here is like a mini Adam. You see, Adam and Eve in the beginning of the garden Whilst the word priest wasn't used, that in a sense was what God called them to be. Those who served God in his presence, in his holiness, who radiated his glory and splendor. This is God's promise of a return to that. That there is going to be a way to get back to the garden. But the thing is, the clothes were never really the point. Uh, there's nothing magical about this set of clothes. As we'll see, there needs to be sacrifice made to make these people holy to serve God. The clothes were simply supposed to be a picture, an external picture of a, an internal reality. The access to God needs to take place through a priest with breathtaking holiness, with a glorious beauty. I wonder whether this helps us then think about Jesus in a slightly different way. Maybe you do think of him in this way. But I wonder whether we ever take a moment to just reflect on his beauty. See, he didn't come in dazzling clothes. No, he came with a holiness that was 
from within that radiated itself in his life, the way that he loved God, the way that he loved those around. The compassion that was drawn out of him when he sees the leper and he moves towards him rather than running away. The tenderness with which he meets that woman at the well and slowly draws out her need for him. The breathtaking beauty and love of a man who's done nothing wrong, who is willing to give of his life for those who would still curse him. See, if we're not a Christian this morning, I think one of the things I'd really encourage you to do if you're exploring the faith is to simply look at Jesus. Uh, Read one of the Gospels for yourself. And just ask the question, what sort of person is this? You see, I don't think we can read the Gospels without concluding that this guy is attractive, even if we can't explain why. Now, there's to be a breathtaking beauty to holiness. And for those of us who are believers, it's our confidence in the beauty of Jesus that is like, it's like a Jenga block at the bottom of the tower. If we are not confident of how beautiful and glorious the Lord Jesus is, we will lack confidence before God. We have to be utterly sure that Jesus is able to enter God's presence because he is pleasing to him, to God in every way. But I wonder too whether there's a bit of a sort of side implication for us as well. I looked up this week, apparently we, we spend a whopping £62 billion each year on clothes. Did you know that? £62 billion Uh, We care a lot about the external, the visual. We care a lot about the beauty of what we look like. I wonder whether we know what it's like to be caught in that. That actually the, the beauty outwardly that we measure ourselves by in other people's eyes, or even the way that we we look at other people, whether we we feel that pull to, to grow in beauty, to make ourselves look presentable and pleasing. See, this beautiful aesthetic of the high priestly clothes, I think is meant to point us, sort of take something we resonate with, beauty and a sort of physical attractiveness, and point us to something more beautiful. It's trying to underline that there is a, a better beauty to aim at. Uh, in 1 Peter chapter 4, when Peter is speaking about this, he says, it's not with the external that we have to adorn ourselves. No, it's the internal Christ-likeness. It's as we behold Jesus' beauty in his character and his holiness that I think we are helped to see that holiness and growing in holiness, which we're called to do as Christians, is a beautiful thing. Uh, That will engage our hearts in new ways. Well, that's the first point. Uh, A priest has access to God. Uh, But secondly, a priest brings the people to God. Now, as become clear, these priests were the ones who could enter into the tabernacle. The majority of Israel couldn't. They, if you like, were on the sidelines watching in. Uh, they were, as it were, looking at the priest doing something for them. And that is shown to us within this uniform. Uh, and we're going to look first at the ephod uh, in verse 6 in chapter 28. Now, ephod is not a word, I think, 
any of us would naturally be familiar with. In fact, it's just really taking the Hebrew word that's being used here, and it's something of a, an apron. I wonder if you have that picture back up on screen there. Um, this is, this is the, the coloured bit on top of the blue robe. Uh, and we're, we're pointed at something very particular in verse 9. Take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel in order of their birth, six names on one stone and the remaining six on the other Uh, engrave these names, um, then mount the stones in gold settings and fasten them on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as memorial stones for the sons of Israel. Aaron is to bear the names on his shoulder as a memorial before the Lord's. Uh, What is going on here? We're being pointed at something particular about these stones that are a part of the ephod's. Uh, when you think of a memorial, I wonder what you think of. I, I tend to think of, I don't know, a big statue that we'd set up as a memorial of someone who does something uh, particularly impressive or maybe uh, a memorial to those who've given their life in some way. Uh, in either case, it's, it's something physical that's to remind us of a person, of something that someone has done. Well, God doesn't need reminding. It, it's not like God is going to see this priest and forget about his people And yet, if you like, this is something God is giving in this uniform. He's giving his people to remind them that as this priest comes into his presence, uh, he is being reminded not just of the priests, but of the people. That the priest, if you like, is carrying the people on his shoulders, that he is representing them. Uh, Those 12 tribes of Israel would have been the sort of clans that people saw themselves as belonging to. Uh, I was just thinking about this this week and wondering whether we would feel something of the similar impact if you could imagine our surnames written on these stones. You know, just imagine the Coopers and Borgs and Williamsons and Mathesons on, on the shoulders. If you, if you imagine thinking that that's in front of me and that's going into the dwelling place, you think that's me, that's my name. That was what this was supposed to do. And notice that this is carried on the priest's shoulders. I think part of that is a sort of direction thing, if you like, that the shoulders are sort of pointing upwards. But I wonder whether, too, it's not reading too much to imagine that actually the shoulders, uh, what do we use our shoulders for? We use it for carrying stuff, don't we? We put bags on our shoulders. Uh, Or maybe we use our shoulders to push things. They're they're kind of a working part of our body. At this priest is not simply just representing them as an ambassador there is a sense in which this priest is carrying the people on his shoulders Uh, chapter 29 is going to point us to the offerings that need to be made for the priest themselves to make them right with God Uh, but their ongoing work is going to be making regular sacrifices on behalf of the people sacrifices to clean them they're going to be doing work in the tabernacle on behalf of the people You see, the Bible calls us, um, and we've seen this in Exodus, that his promise is that we will be a nation of priests. And yet there's something about this priesthood that we are being taught, that there is a sense in which we need a priest who does something on our behalf. So you imagine an Israelite growing up in Israel at this moment. Uh, They don't look at the priesthood and think, you know what, one day I really wish I could be a priest and serve in God's tabernacle. No, if they weren't born in the family, that's never going to be an option for them. Now, what do they do? They look at the priesthoods 
And they should have been led to think, thank God that we've been given those people who can go into the temple, the tabernacle, on my behalf. Someone God has given who is able to do something to deal with my sin. See, in an age of self-help and autonomy, I think there is a challenge here to us that the Bible starts by saying we cannot make ourselves right with God. That we cannot dare enter into his presence. Uh, It's not about trying harder. Jesus comes with no secret kind of technique for meditation or spiritual practice to sort of bring and egg God's presence closer to us. Now the Bible says we need a priest who has access to God, who does something on our behalf, who has to literally carry us on his shoulders. So I think it's been a long time since I have actually been on someone else's shoulders, been carried. But I wonder whether we can remember a time, maybe when we were younger, where we, we would go on someone's shoulders. And kids absolutely love it. My kids would be non-stop on my shoulders if it weren't for the fact I'd tell them, no, that's enough. But well, why is it we don't enjoy doing that as adults? I mean, there's part of me who thinks that would be fun, wouldn't it? But actually, I, th- I think most of us would think, ah, I'm not sure I trust whether they could carry me. Uh, I'd rather not look embarrassed. There's a sense in which it's embarrassing maybe for us as adults to be on someone's shoulders. And we fear, like, will they, will they hold us? Well, with Jesus, we have to come to a point where we think, you know what, I need to be carried on his shoulders. And actually, I'm entirely confident that he can carry me, that we are confident because of him. Uh, but the symbolism continues uh, from these onyx stones to then the breastpiece, which is in the middle. Uh, and uh, verse uh, 21, we're told there to be 12 stones on this breastpiece, four rows of three. And each of these stones is going to have a name of the tribe of Israel, the same names that are on the shoulders. Uh, well, why, why, the, why the repeated stones and why the repeated names? Well, I think this is making a number of points. And one, it's, it's, make, it's connecting something we've seen in Exodus of, of God's people being this treasured possession. I think God is really powerfully communicating. These are these precious jewels representing each of these tribes. No tribe ignored. No tribe kind of left to the bottom of the list. They are all before God. And yet there's, there's a wonderful statement about where these things are. Verse 28 uh, notice the rings of the breastpiece are to be tied to the rings of the ephod with a blue cord connecting it to the waistband so that the breastpiece will not swing out from the ephod. Uh, just as a, a general comment, when you're going through this kind of lots of detail, look out for the words so that. They are often very helpful for underlining something we might be missing. What, so that the ephod won't swing out, why does that matter? Well, verse 29 says... Whenever Aaron enters the holy place, he will bear the names of the sons of Israel over his heart on the breastpiece of decision as a continual memorial before the Lord. God wants this breastpiece to be utterly attached in order that it would not leave resting over the heart of the priest. Do you see what a beautiful image that is? Uh, In the Bible, the the heart is the most significant organ. It's the center of the the mind, the will, and the emotions. And this is a picture that the priests, as they go into God's presence on behalf of the people, who will they have over their hearts? Whose interests will they have closest to them? 
God's people. See, from our our hearts flow our words, our actions. Our hearts are filled with desires and concerns. Uh, What are the desires and concerns, words and actions to serve? It's to serve God's people, each of his people, each of those precious, dazzling jewels representing the glory of who they are in God's eyes. See, it's a constant reminder that the priest isn't there just to do something on their behalf. The priest is there for them. As he made sacrifices on their behalf, he is meant to embody God's heart for the people, God's boundless mercy and love, to remember them as that treasured possession to God, to serve them, to be their advocates, to lead them in decision-making. You'll notice that mention of the Urim and Thummim, We don't exactly know what these were, but we know that they were a sort of way that God's people could ask a question of God. You think maybe they were like two stones and you could ask God a question on behalf of the nation. Should we go to war or not? And he would, as it were, draw one of those in giving his answer. It was a way of seeking God for guidance. Uh, This priest is to bear that ability to come before God, to lead God's people with them on his heart. Now I just want to linger on this for a moment in thinking about what this tells us about Jesus because I think sometimes we can go wrong when we imagine Jesus as this priest who's interceding but he's, he, he becomes rather like a sort of defence lawyer who's somehow twisting God's arm behind his back. You know that kind of, if it wasn't for Jesus God really wanted to kind of squash us but you know Jesus is there, he makes a good case and okay, you know, we're not judged. Do you see how this picture that God gives us shows us that that is, that is just not what the Bible teaches? God wants his people to know that he wants his priest to have his people's best interests at heart. That this is part of the design. He wants this priest to be for his people. See, in a couple of weeks' time, we're going to see an immense and powerful example, I think, of this in Moses. Um, John mentioned already that it's not going to take long for people to turn to sin. They're going to uh, create an idol. Look at the very thing that God has told them not to do because they were impatient. After everything that they've seen, after everything God has done for them. And Moses, in a, a priestly way, comes down and looks at their sin and he is clear they have sinned grossly. His heart is broken as he sees their sin. Now, he doesn't take their sin lightly. He is angry, frustrated. How can you turn from the God who has saved you and rescued you and given you all these good things? And yet, what's his next impulse as he stands before God? He says, forgive them. Please forgive them by your mercy because of who you are. And in fact, he says, if that's not possible, blot me out instead of them. Let their guilt rest on my heads. See what an immense picture that is of a priest who would love the people that much. That's the design God had for a priest. Again, we'll see that in a couple of weeks, but I think God wants to draw that out of Moses because that is the sort of priest that we have in Jesus. We have a better Moses. Jesus knows where we've blown it. He sees our sin. And he takes it seriously. 
It's not a laughing matter. But he never looks at us and says, you know, you know what, they've been a Christian for 27 years and they still can't get a handle on bitterness. They still can't forgive. You know what, that's enough. I think we now need to just teach them a lesson. No, our high priest looks at us and says, no, I have died for them. I have let my life be given to forgive and rescue them. See, in Romans 8, 34, we're given a wonderful picture of where Jesus is now. And I have to say, I remember reading this verse when I was younger and thinking, you know, Jesus dies for us on the cross. He, he takes away our sin. Why does he need to be at God's right hand interceding for us now? I mean, surely God knows that, that the balance has been settled. And then I realized, actually, isn't this the most comforting picture that God would give you and me in the moment where we feel convicted by our sin, in that kind of present ongoing reality, that when we look upwards, Jesus is there and he's saying, I have paid for it. Now, Jesus intercedes at God's right hand as our high priest because he has us on his heart. He represents us before God. And God gives us that picture for assurance. Well, thirdly and finally, the priest is to make the people pleasing to God. Uh, we're going to look at the seal now that comes in chapter eight, uh, 28, verse 36. Uh, make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it as a seal, holy to the Lord. Now, there's lots of dazzling imagery on the priest. Um, lots of things that will sort of glitter and sparkle in the sun, but it'd be pretty hard to look at someone for very long without being drawn to something that's written above their foreheads. This is a way that it's, it's telling us this is a very important message. It's a statement both about Aaron, but it's also then a statement about God's people because of Aaron and what he's doing. But firstly, let's think about what it means for Aaron and his sons. Now, although they have been given this special honour of the priesthood, Chapter 29 makes clear that the clothes aren't able to make them fit to serve. What does verse 1 say in 29? This is what you're to do to consecrate them so that they may serve me as priests. That word consecrate, make holy. This is what you need to do to make these people holy. And we're then given a number of sacrifices. At verse 10 to 14, we are shown that they need to offer a sin offering. Uh, this is where they take a bull and they slaughter the bull. Like last week, remember, they, they put their hands on the sacrifice. They say, this is me. It dies instead. They have to do that for seven days. I find it hard to imagine just the amount of physical work required in killing each of these animals. But it's a picture, isn't it, that their sin needs to be cleansed. They need to be purified. Uh, this is for their atonement. That comes in verse 36. We thought about atonement last week. That is making us at one with God. These priests need sacrifices themselves to purify them, to disinfect their hearts. But we're being taught something about the nature of sin in this picture, which I think comes out in the need to even consecrate the altar. The altar needs to be purified in verse 36. See, it feels a bit weird to us thinking about sin infecting physical things, but the whole of these pictures in, in the Pentateuch, they're, they're trying to take what sin is like and represent it in physical form for us. 
And it's making the point here that the sin of the people, including Aaron and his sons, it was contagious, it was infectious. Anything they touched, they tainted. It's not just that they needed cleansing, but the place that they were in needed cleansing. The altar that they'd offer the sacrifices on needed cleansing. Uh, It makes me think of like a sort of operating theatre. I don't think I've ever actually, well actually maybe I have been in an operating theatre once or twice, but I think on TV programmes they make it look more dramatic, don't they? It needs to be utterly clean. You have to be scrubbed up and washed down. Nothing impure is able to come into the operating theatre. In that case, it's because getting dirt in there is going to cause a problem for the patient. But here, the problem is the other way around. The problem is that for dirt to come into God's presence, it will get annihilated and destroyed. No, for their safety, they are not fit to serve God until they have been cleansed. But the thing is, they're not just given one offering, they're given two. Oh, actually more than two, but uh, look at the second one, which is the burnt offering. That comes from verse 15 onwards. Here they are given two rams. Uh, and the first ram, they are to, uh, to kill, again, putting their hands on it, cut it to pieces, wash the organs, and then they burn the entire thing to the Lord's. Now, burnt offerings in the Bible were often ones that were done voluntarily. Now, obviously, this is being told that the priests needed to offer it, but there was a sense of their kind of willing voluntariness to serve in this way is being communicated here. And notice what we're told about this offering. A burnt offering to the Lord, verse 18, a pleasing aroma, a food offering presented to the Lord. Now, I know Gordon's going to talk to us more about this, so I don't want to steal too much of what he he says here. But the picture of this offering was supposed to be sort of, uh, what do you, I don't know what you call the sense of your nose. You're supposed to be able to smell what's going on here. Sin has been purified. This offering is just rather like a, a really tasty barbecue. Try and imagine, uh, if you're not a vegetarian, a really tasty barbecue. The smell. You know, God doesn't have a nose, but this smell of this offering is going up to God. It is pleasing to him. Uh, the people take the other ram and they... They shed its blood and it's in a rather weird way. They put the blood on their right earlobes and on their thumbs and their toes. It's it's like a visual picture. The the whole of their body and clothes is being consecrated and set apart from God's. At the point of this second burnt offering was to make it clear that not only has their sin been dealt with, they've been purified. They are now in a new status before God. They are pleasing to him. They've been set apart specially able now to serve God. They, therefore, are holy to the Lord. So turning back then to that verse 38 in 28, it is having that status on their their head that we're told, it's on Aaron's forehead, and he will bear the guilt involved in the sacred gifts the Israelites consecrate, whatever their gifts will be. It will be on Aaron's forehead continually, so that they will be acceptable to the Lord. You see, it's only when the priest is made holy to the Lord that their sacrifices on behalf of the people is able to make the people acceptable to God. Now, that word acceptable kind of feels a bit underwhelming to us. I think we could imagine someone thinking, they just about make the cut, they're acceptable. That's not what's going on here. This is the similar idea of a pleasing word, a bit like the the smell in the nostrils. This is making God's people pleasing to him. That God would look at them as those who are not just kind of purified of their sin, but those he delights in, those he rejoices in. 
those who are that treasured possession to him. And I think in all these details, we see a wonderful contrast and fulfillment in Jesus, don't we? See, there's an inbuilt problem here in the priests needing to offer sacrifices for their sins to make them holy to God in order to make the people holy to God. Uh, Who's actually doing this work? Well, it's Moses, isn't it? He's the one who's offering the sacrifices for them. But it points forward for the need of a greater high priest, uh, one who doesn't need to purify themselves, one who is already accepted and pleasing to God. And that is what we've been given in Jesus. Uh, 1 John 2 says that he, Jesus, is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. He's the priest who enters God's presence, not with a separate sacrifice in his hand. He enters into God's presence with his life as his sacrifice, purifying us and making us pleasing to God. See, in a moment, we are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And it is a wonderful reminder as we look back that Jesus has come as that great high priest to sacrifice his life for us. His body is broken, his blood is poured out as the offering needed to disinfect our hearts. Taking part in that meal is expressing a trust. We need him, that we need that sacrifice, that that's how bad our sin is. But it also means trusting what that death achieves. That that death is a burnt offering as much as a sin offering. That that meal is saying that we truly believe that before God, only by Jesus, we are utterly forgiven. That we are utterly pleasing to him. That there is no more fear in approaching God. Because he's the one who carries us on our heart, on his heart. And I think this is helpful for us because... It's good that we reflect when we take the Lord's Supper. I remember growing up in a church that would have a kind of a long extended period of kind of reflecting on our sin as we came to the Lord's Supper. And we should never take the Lord's Supper lightly. And yet the overwhelming tone as we celebrate and share this meal together surely is one of joy. That when we put our trust in Jesus, we say it's not about us, it's about who he is. Believing that is trusting that by Jesus we are made perfect in his eyes, that we are delighted in by our God, that there is nothing more that we could possibly do to make ourselves any more acceptable or pleasing to God our Father. Uh, There's a wonderful quote uh, which we'll end with by a pastor called uh, Robert Murray Muccini. And he speaks about sin this way. He quotes Jeremiah 17 verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? He was a man who felt much of his sin, much of his heart's capacity to try and dumb down sin, to not take it seriously. But what does he say we need to do? He says, learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely, such infinite majesty, and yet such meekness and grace, and all for sinners, even the chief. Live much in the smiles of God, bask in his beams, feel his all-seeing eye settled on you in love, and repose in his mighty arms. 
Let your soul be filled with a heart-ravaging sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in him. Let the Holy Spirit fill every chamber of your heart and so there will be no more room for folly or the world or Satan or the flesh. For every one look at our sin, we are called to take 10 looks at Christ. 10 looks at that great high priest who is acceptable to God, who can enter into his presence. That great high priest who carries us on his shoulders and wears us on his heart. That great high priest who is not only pleasing to God, but who has given his life to make us, his people, pleasing and holy to him. Why don't we take a moment to reflect on these things and I'll lead us. Father God, we thank you that in your mercy, you do something that we can't do. You send a priest that is able to enter your presence on our behalf and bring us close to you. Father, might you help us now as we celebrate this Lord's Supper, might we take that 10 looks at Jesus? Might we remember his death for us? Might we trust and recognize that by that death we are made right with you that every stain of sin that our hearts feel has been purified washed clean that we are carried on his shoulders and made wonderfully pleasing and acceptable to you might you fill us with the joy and confidence of what we proclaim together this morning we pray amen